Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 61. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Dr. Woolman. And greetings to you, Christina. How are you? Fantastic. I love that. Yes, we're raring to go. I love this topic. (laughs) (laughs) Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your medical guide along with Christina today as we search the uh, healthcare galaxies and searching for optimal health. Today, we're fortunate to have with us a dear friend and colleague, Ann Diamond, who's a marriage and family therapist and also a licensed psychological clinical counselor. And as you said, it's going to be a very interesting show today. So anybody that's out there watching with us, here's how to get in touch with us to ask Ann some questions. Absolutely. So at any time during this live presentation, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment by scrolling down on your screen and typing the comment into the box. Be sure to click submit and it will show up on my screen and I'll share it with our guest. Or if you prefer to ask it yourself, um, you are very, very welcome to dial into our conference line. The number is 323-476-3672. The ID is 607-393-POUND. If that went by a little too quick, not to worry. It will show up on your screen during our show. Thank you, Glenn. Uh, Perfect, uh, Christina. Thank you. And we look forward to there will probably be some great questions today. Anne Diamond, who is a marriage and family therapist and and a licensed psychological clinical counselor, is also a dear friend of mine and a colleague. She specializes in helping couples, teens, and individuals uh, fix their relationships and fix conflicts during life crises and issues that can cause anxiety and depression. Uh, Very successful in her practice, and hopefully we're going to get her to give us some great information today. This time I'd like to introduce everyone to Ann Diamond. Welcome, Ann. Hi. I'm so delighted to be here. Thank you so much, Glenn and Christina. Thank you for joining us, Anne. It's uh, such a pleasure to have you here with us. We so enjoyed having your husband on our show before, and now it's your turn. <laughs> right. And we are uh, we, we embody what I do. We have a happy marriage, and I'm both informed by my work and informed by my marriage. Yeah. <laughs> That's because of all the serenading that he does with those gorgeous guitars behind you. <laughs> I tell you, let's see. I think you put a guitar in a guy's uh, hands and he becomes much more attractive. <laughs> Seriously, I just read a study about that. Oh, I agree. It's between <laughs> guitars and uniforms. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Oh, I'm going to have to try both on him. (laughs) And so thanks, everyone, for tuning in today. It's been a great show. And uh, I think we've covered pretty much everything, guitars and uniforms. Are there any other questions? <laughs> this is this is tips tips before you get married. <laughs> Boy, or we're going you're to cover that. Someone. Okay, well, what do you put in her hands or the other guy's hands? <laughs> we're going I mean, to talk about. Oh, I get it. A spoon and a pot. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, we'll get serious then. <laughs> I'm going to be interested in watching that along with the rest of our <laughs> audience here, watching you two get serious. That would be great. 
<laughs> so Anne, usually as the medical guide, although I have no idea anymore at this moment, uh, I try to give our viewers an idea of where we're going to go today. So first we want to learn a little about you, how you got into healing, what uh, interested you, what are the great parts, and we want to talk about some of your training a little bit. And then we're going to actually get into uh, marriage and therapy and look at some of the other things that you do. So how does that sound? That sounds great. Good. So let's start out simply with, tell us about Anne and when Anne decided to become a healer and why you took the direction you did, what influenced you. Give us a few moments on that. Well, like most people who go into my profession, uh, it happened as the result of a personal journey. So in my background, I've always been interested in people through um, art and literature and interaction. And I was a very anxious person. And in my younger years, I was afraid of anything like uh Flying, for instance, which is what got me into uh, my interest in hypnosis. And as a result, I sort of opened a door and saw the difference between fear and fact and how to differentiate those, how to do self-soothing, calming. And as a result of that... Um, I found the world to be a much open, more open and friendly place. I advanced my education. I started doing hypnosis as a as an unlicensed person, and in that process, I uh, decided to go to school to become an MFT. It was something that I always really wanted to do, and realized I could do when I experienced the shift in, this is a a buzzword for my profession is boundaries, how we get confused in boundaries. And when I really experienced that I have a boundary and other people have their boundaries, and that's very uh, clear and negotiable, um, I felt free to go ahead and and study this. I felt um, that I had something to learn and something to offer. And I'm so honored to be working with people and invited to the intimate intimate details and experiences of their lives. That's great. I, I felt that way in the emergency department, too. Uh, it, it is something very special for people that go into healing. Uh, you get invited into people's intimacies, and it's uh, it's very sacred if you treat it that way. And I know you do. It's true. It's a. It's a. It is. It's a sacred realm. What What is it? What does it take in terms of study to become uh, an MFT, a marriage and family therapist? Well, that's a master's level license. I have a master's in science that uh, that I worked for at uh, Cal State Northridge, and in that study, you are exposed to the various theories of um, counseling and healing and psychology, uh, practical applications. I did uh, 
how many semester units of research and um, statistics. And so, which I'm very glad I did because I really appreciate the uh, ability to um, discern evidence-based practice. Uh, then after that comes the 3,000 hours of clini supervised clinical practice. And um, that's, that's, that's a bear to get through. Most people don't get paid for that. I was very fortunate. I found opportunities to work and get paid for my pre-licensed hours. I worked as a school counselor, uh, which was... Um, I tell you, uh, that, that was the spectrum of joy and, and nightmare. <laughs> and, um, well, you know, you work with these kids and, and some of them are just so at risk. And I remember fretting about them. Um, on the other hand, uh, to be working with kids and offer that one Thing that is so special, and that's to see them for who they are, uh, not as a role of an authority or a parent or a teacher, just another person. And it's such a gift to the child and, of course, a gift to be able to do that. Um, so the 3,000 hours of supervised uh, practice, and then you take the state license exam. And, uh, and then... I went into private practice. I segued very easily because I had been doing my hypnosis practice, and many of those people were just thrilled to have me as um, in another role as a marriage counselor or more in-depth therapy, psychotherapy. Excellent. Thank you for that. Do you also have to do continuing education credits, keep yes. up your license? Yep. Yep. 36 hours every two years. Okay. of which have to be law and ethics. Law and ethics. Oh, very yes. interesting. So uh, I was thinking uh, about our show, and I realized that for the most part, all species on this planet have are hardwired for two basic things. One is survival, and one is either replication or procreation. And this is what keeps our species alive. We've... Uh, brought in an institution called marriage, which in the statistics that I've looked at shows a 50% success, 50% failure rate. And so I realized that we can't count on Luke Skywalker, Captain Kirk, Superman, the Lone Ranger, Thor, or even Iron Man 3. It's really <laughs> up to you, Anne, to save our species. So... As a person who is now designated to saving our species, let's start with something. First of all, do you agree with that? Well, I'm going to have to back up because I'm going to say without marriage, our species would still survive. It, in deep time, marriage did not exist. We had uh, bands of people who were maybe loosely monogamous, and people didn't live as long. But without marriage, people still procreated. And guess what? Without marriage, people still do procreate, as we can see. <laughs> so, so marriage yeah. and procreation are entirely two separate entities. <laughs> and in our culture, we want them joined. We want procreation to happen within the context of marriage. 
Exactly. That's the institution that we've developed here. But right. so far as an institution, if we developed the institution of medicine and 50% of our surgeries didn't work, and maybe it's true that they don't, but uh, we would have to look at that. Our financial advisors, everyone, even if we went to a restaurant and 50% of the time it, it, it wasn't good, there would be a lot of questions. So let's start, let's start before marriage. And uh, we always talk about preventive medicine here. Uh, are there, first of all, is marriage a good institution? Well, um, I'm going to quote uh, the Eagles and say it could be heaven or it could be hell. Uh, <laughs> you know, there, there's a reason why 50% end in divorce. And that, that, that has to do with the pressure that is um, that people experience in our culture being married. We're so isolated in our culture. And we end up depending on everything, depending on one person for everything. And that's really unrealistic. And when th that's another factor is people come into marriage with that expectation. When marriage falls short of expect, when your partner falls short of expectations, that is the number one predictor of divorce. So to get to speak to your point about prevention, um, before you get, before you sign up, uh, check out your expectations. What are your expectations? Have you articulated them to yourself? Have you articulated them to your partner? Can your partner provide that? Has your partner articulated his or her expectations. So that's a big one right there. And that's what premarital counseling does. It, it flushes out, flushes out, what are your expectations? Is this something that the person is willing and able to provide? Should everyone go uh, have premarriage counseling? Whether it's Whether that question is addressed through counseling or through a um, pastor or, uh, whatever, whatever source people should address the question of what are your expectations? How, how, what does conflict look like? How does conflict get resolved? Who does what around the house? Those questions need to be asked and answered. And, you know, I think I would recommend that, that everybody have someone that they can go to while things are good, while you're in your the um, the springtime of your love, because then you have someone who is a witness to what's really good about the relationship, what those hopes and dreams are. And if things start to get stressed, you've got someone to go to. One of the biggest areas of frustration in my profession is people wait way too long to go get help for their relationship. And by that time, uh, sometimes the, pe the reason people are seeking help is not so much to stay in the relationship, but how to get out of it. They do it as a last-ditch attempt, or they do it as a way to safely bring up the fact that they've been seeing somebody for two years. Or um, 
so what I'm saying is that if you establish someone who's there for you, someone who sees the ideals of your relationship, and it could even be the person who married you. I mean, I think ideally that's what we do. That That's why people get married with a, a a pastor or a rabbi. There's somebody who witnesses those ideals and the, and the promises that people bring into the marriage. That's a person who ideally you can go back to for help. And that's what I like to see people do. Come in and uh, talk about what they want, what they expect, what the how they anticipate to solve conflicts. And then you have a baseline that you can go back to. How long before you uh, get married should you see a therapist or a counselor? Uh, Well, that's a really good question. I guess it depends on the couple. Uh, People who go into it and have a pretty, you know, nice relationship with not a lot of conflict might not even need to do that. But I think that when plans are in the making, um, that would be a good time to check in, find somebody that you uh, trust that is there for you to ask these questions. And, you know, the funny thing is, Glenn, that the less people need it, the more people tend to do that. So we tend to see people come mm-hmm. into therapy that are very realistic, that really do want the best. And people that are in those, those uh, conflictual, high-conflict relationships where there's a lot of fighting, they're the ones that, that most need to come in and tend to come in the least. And why that is, well, I I guess it's because um, they have the hope that things will change once they get married. They have the unrealistic expectation that they can change their partner or that once they step through the, uh, across the threshold that, that suddenly their relationship will take on the hopes and dreams that they went into it with in the first place. But that doesn't happen. You brought up some very yes, interesting points there. I think the the expectation and the thought that something is going to change or that you can change someone. Uh, I right. saw that a lot uh, in my and see that a lot in my practice, where it just or you can not only change someone but you can fix someone right. that that right. you determine might be broken. Have you ever in uh, your uh, working with people? ever counseled someone not to get married? Well, I, you know, I I don't really give advice that way. What I try to do is lead people to their own truth so that they can see with open eyes what they are stepping into. And ultimately it's, it's up to the person. I've never said you should get divorced or you should get married, but in the process that, the counseling is a process of bringing to light what is actually going on and comparing it to what the person hopes for or fears. Um, but frustratingly, I have seen people who um, have very dysfunctional relationships, a continued cycle of intense fighting and then coming back into this close uh, closeness 
and hoping that that is going to change someday when, in fact, that is the relationship. Well, does it does it matter uh, whether does does either party ever feel that they should have a someone of their own gender as the counselor, or do you get past that for opposite gender? Ah, uh, well, you know the 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 truth of the matter is most people in my profession are women. And most people who want to bring the, the relationship into therapy are women. And that does, that does present a problem. Uh, a lot of times the men, men feel uh, outnumbered. They feel like uh, the women somehow have a, a compact that doesn't include them. So I work very hard to be unbiased, very hard to... Uh, not take sides, not tri- triangulate. Um, and I know that there are men who provide marriage th- counseling who are who are great and and shoot for the same goal. So it doesn't matter too much, really. Well, I guess if it matters a lot, uh, you know what I see a lot is um, one of the partners really wants to come in for therapy. They really feel like they're desperate and they want help. And what they do is they say to their partner, you know, I don't care who it is, whether you want to go to a man or a woman, I'll do anything to get you in. And unfortunately, that's when it's, it's uh, a little, um, people wait a little too long, um, and that's, I guess that would be my one message in this entire show is if you have problems in your relationship, don't wait. Go get preemptive help. How do you know when you have a problem? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I guess when you are feeling like you're not being listened to, not being heard, and the same fights develop over and over. And when uh, you start um, maybe avoiding discussions, um, when fights happen really quickly, like uh, zero to 60, you walk in the house, everything's fine, and boom, there's a fight. Well, that speaks to a problem, and that speaks to a larger discussion, because the the cliche is the fight is usually the same old fight and it's not about what you're really fighting about. Is that the is that the work that you do in the therapy with them in the sessions with them find out what the real fight is about? Yeah, what the real issues are, what um, what each partner is feeling that the other one is unaware of, uh, which is quite amazing. Why can't people speak to each other? Oh, gosh. Glenn, I wish I could answer that. Because hmm. uh, they don't want to hear what the other person has to say because they feel entitled to have all of their feelings accepted and responded to. Uh, there are just so many reasons, and that is such a fundamental question. Christina. Oh, this is so much fun. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's interesting as, as I'm listening to you, and I, I go through all the, the events in my own life 
And I look mm-hmm. at that and I go, hmm, isn't that interesting? The, the time when I was young and engaged and, you know, I was invincible. And uh, no matter what anyone told me, oh, we'll overcome it. We can do this. <laughs> you know? right, right. And, and it didn't matter who it was. It, it, it was that wonderful dream world of, yes, we can do it. We can have children and all this and that. Everything was beautiful no matter what anybody said. It, it, it almost like rolled. It was like water just trickling down the back, you know. Now I'm a lot older. Now I'm twice the age and it's a whole different deal. You know, it's, it is about speaking. It is about communication because just through experience, you realize that you must speak, you must communicate. Uh, and, and it has so much to do with that. And those boundaries that you speak of, so powerful, you know, to adjust them, to have them there. Right. You know, it, all these things is magnificent. But what do you do with these young couples that come in and they're invincible. Well, Christina, that's so that that is just so precious what you're saying, and it's so true. And I think that uh, parents struggle with that, and certainly um, my people in my profession see a train wreck ahead. But you can't rescue people from their own path. And I think that that was one of my ideals going into this because uh, I didn't just fall off the turnip truck when I got licensed. I had um, done those, that that invincible thing, <laughs> uh, hoping for a different result. And I think that's that's the nature of the human being. That's what being young is about. You have to make your own mistakes. You have to think big. If everybody played it safe, we wouldn't get anywhere. And Glenn, maybe procreation would stop altogether if people really thought ahead to <laughs> what it's going to be like. So people are entitled to make their own choices. Um, but it is hard when you see people that are... Um, truly ill-equipped uh, and that you can predict what the problems are going to be. And all you can hope to do is be very, very empathic and instrumental. In other words, you want to be on their side. You want to see things from their perspective so that you can hopefully create some perspective on their part so they might be able to look ahead. Um, People have a tendency to to minimize risk and maximize opportunity, and we want to make sure what is the realistic risk and opportunity. Mm-hmm. And That's so, a good point. Well, and, and my work is informed by cognitive behavioral therapy. And uh, so we want to look at what are you thinking? What are your thoughts and what are your beliefs? And is it really true? Is it really like that? And are you acting on accuracy and information and what the other person is really um capable of, or is it a belief? And getting back to your your question before and why people can't communicate or why people can't listen to one another 
it's often because they don't accept what they're hearing. Mm. They, they don't accept, they believe that the person should feel a different way and they keep going around that loop rather than really hearing what the person is saying or what is going on. But you know, what, what's uh, very interesting is um, uh, an experience that I had, which it's uh, in the beginning of that courtship period where, uh, where we say things and do things to please the other. And it's such a lovely time. And, but those choices that we've made, it, they might not be authentic. <laughs> and quite often they're not. Well, they sort of last through the relationship. Meanwhile, I really didn't like what you did, but I just said I did like it. <laughs> And that person <laughs> continues to do it. <laughs> and it's like bloody irritating, you know. <laughs> Surprise! And then you don't this realize is... till later when you are in therapy that, what, what do you mean you didn't like that? But you did like that. Oh, no, no, no. Like right. 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 Well, Those that, you know what? Uh, that's true. And that that's... You know, the gift of real intimacy is being able to be honest about that, to be forthcoming about, you know, and I have to say that happens in sex a lot, where people uh, are doing the same old thing that the person just doesn't have the heart or or nerve to say doesn't please me. Mm. So that's what we try to teach in our profession is how to be honest, how to open up and hear honesty. Mm-hmm. Often people teach you not to be honest because they can't take it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a very good point. And I don't, uh, I'm not up to date. Maybe the two of you are more up to date on this, but it seems to me when you use the words a few moments ago that we're ill-equipped, most, for me, education is the important part of life. We all need to be educated from the beginning so that we learn how to speak the language, how to use addition and social issues. Are we teaching marriage in classes so that we don't ever have to use the words people are ill-equipped, young people are getting married, or do we have to change the marriage regulation to say you can't be married until you're 30 or 40 or 50 or something like that? What are we doing in the schools to help equip people? I don't think very much is happening in the schools at all to equip people uh, in um, for uh, committed relationships. Um, and I, 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 I'm not sure I want to speak to that because uh, there are just so many problems. Schools today are fraught with um, problems. How, how do you learn how to have a close, committed relationship when, in Santa Barbara at least, one out of four high school uh, students are in an abusive relationship. And that relationship happens in the context of constant contact, of Facebook, of um, being online, being recorded, being um, in, in your face, or in other people's faces all the time. I think right now being in high school or junior high school um, for a lot, not for everybody, but for a lot of um, people is a very stressful part of life. And I think that as I speak, sometimes 
they look forward to being out of that and being in a relationship as a safe refuge from that. But I, um, I think that that's what families are there for. That's what your parents are there for, to teach, to, to demonstrate, to talk about what uh, you need to equip yourself for a relationship. And so many people don't see that. Glenn, when you talk about 50% um, divorce rate, well, um, guess when that happens? That happens when kids are generally young, between the ages of 5 and 13, um, roughly. So kids in that age are growing up in the context of messy divorces, blended families, and that's not easy on kids. They didn't ask to suddenly have this person step into their life as as a step-parent. So I think that uh, we don't do enough to equip people for um, sustained commitment and intimacy in a realistic basis. You know, this... This, uh, it seems like it's very bleak here. The very people that are getting married and having the kids, causing the problems with the kids who are then going to recycle and get married in the same type of loop based on what they learned in an abusive manner. It seems like if we're going to have this as, as an institution, uh, more should be done. In an ideal world, what would you see, or if not necessarily ideal world, but what would you see? could or should be done to change this? Well, I, I think that society is already doing it. Uh, for instance, the whole concept of marriage is changing. I think that a lot of people don't get married thinking that this is it forever. I think people get married thinking that mm. this is what's right for me now. And divorce has become very normalized for better or for worse. And sometimes it is for better. Um, I think that our, we're, we're witnessing our society redefine marriage to include gay people. Thank goodness, finally. And I think that people live together. Much That's much more normalized than it used to be. That used to be scandalous that people would shack up. And now it's very um, normalized to have people live together before they get married. So... With as dim as a view that we could have by looking at some aspects of our society, I think our culture as a whole is adjusting and opening up and responding to the um, unrealistic um, concept of marriage as being uh, exclusive, long-term, committed, and um, I guess... I guess I'll stop with those words. <laughs> Do you think um, that because it is committed, long-term, et cetera, all the things you said, and that's something that none of us get to experience on, under certain circumstances, do you think it, it makes sense that part of the relationship should be about being together and, and learning what it is to be committed and uh, together before you're married to make that final decision? Yeah, I think, I think so. Um, you know, getting back to some of your earlier questions, 
uh, I and why don't people hear one another? How do they get locked in those cycles? I think that one of the things that brings people together is the desire to have intimacy. But unfortunately, it's also the fear of being alone. And I think it's very important for people to face being alone Mm -hmm. as a part of being in a relationship because your partner cannot rescue you from the fact of aloneness in this world. And I believe that in order to have intimacy and in order to have health in our relationships, we need to be able to understand that we come together as choice, that in this world, nobody needs to be married. I mean, you can, as we said before, you can procreate, you can live together. No one needs to have a a committed relationship. So we do this by for, by by choosing to be with somebody, by saying, I want to commit to you because of the things that I get when I'm with you, that we have together, that, that our relationship creates in this world, not a need, not I fear being alone, so I'm going to con- try to control you and be with you and fear being out of your, out of your, um, sites, <laughs> to put it dramatically. Those are great points. I, I really like that. The, the first part about the difference between being alone and being lonely, and also what you're saying, the, the good reasons why we should be in a marriage. Those are the choices, and that's why we should make that. I really like that. Uh, you, you see people within a marriage that maybe don't have problems with their marriage, but have problems in, on their own, anxiety, depression, things that they might have had before marriage. Uh, would you say anxiety and depression are two of the main problems that we have in our society now that cause disruption in things like marriage? Well, I would definitely uh, depression in our society globally is is uh, uh, it, it's practically pandemic, um, and it does uh, depression tends to be um, to spread when you're with somebody who's depressed. It rubs off and it comes between you. So I think that depression definitely has to be addressed when it's in a relationship. Um, people don't, I mean, what is depression? It, it, it's hopelessness. It's feeling isolated. It's having, feeling that something is wrong with the person and feeling like there's no future. So how does that work in a relationship? You can see how damaging that is to a relationship. And so I definitely see individuals, because their partner has asked them to come in and get help, um, or because they know that they need help for depression. Dr. Tony Bark last week, she talked about a lot of the drugs that are being given now uh, for people that are depressed and uh, causing their own problems. And I know that because of your uh, your specialty, you don't treat people with drugs. You have alluded to the fact that you talk about hypnosis and 
other things. I know you do mindfulness work and mind body work. So when people do come in to see you, uh, how do you work with their anxiety and their depression? Well, you're right. I'm not licensed to um, provide medication, and that some people don't um, understand that uh, that psychologists and MFTs, social workers, are do not prescribe medication. But um, I don't necessarily see medication as the answer anyway, unless there is severe debilitating depression. Uh, now, let's talk about um, being ill-equipped. I think that a lot of people experience anxiety and depression because they just don't know how not to view the world in the way that they do. Uh, For instance, having unrealistic expectations. If your expectations are that your partner or that the world is going to... um, well, let's say, think of a good example, that you're in a relationship for a long time with a person who isn't going to commit, but your hope and expectation is that someday they'll commit. That's living with an unrealistic expectation. And so teaching people to adjust their expectations, to look at their thinking and beliefs, to realize that there are unknowable things in the world and you have to be able to deal with that. I think that one of the biggest drivers of depression and anxiety is people's need to be um, in need to to know the answers before the question is even asked, what is going to happen? Mm. And we have to realize that most of the world is out of our hands and all we can deal with, and this comes to mindfulness, is maybe the the three or four things that we are in control of at any one time. And that might be our breathing, that might be our body posture, that might be the thoughts that we're we have in our minds what are we saying to ourselves what are our what are we engaging in are we ruminating what what is the quality of our thoughts are we thinking um catastrophizing are we thinking hopefully in a realistic way so um that's what i do i try to teach people the thought and body process to uh to feel good, actually. I really like that. I like those three things, and they're all three of them are extremely important, and, and I really believe you're right. If you suddenly, in any state of anxiety or issue, if you concentrate on your breathing for a few moments, if you concentrate on your posture, which is really a great one to bring up, and then also on the thoughts that are going on, that's great. Do you ever hypnotize people together as a as a couple? You know, I I have and I've done group hypnosis. A lot of the hypnosis that I do is there's formal and indirect hypnosis. Formal hypnosis is I'm going to hypnotize you right now and we might go through a breathing process and a sequence of relaxation and, and uh, formally orienting their mind to um, 
the process. But indirect hypnosis is really engaging people in a process of thinking, in maybe imagery, in maybe getting people to shift their focus. And so I do that a lot in my work. I might draw people to a quiet uh, opportunity of thinking and feeling, taking people out of the context of their concrete discussion that they're having and getting to a meta level of feeling, of imagining, of maybe going back in time. What are some of your favorite memories together and what what do you hope for in the future? And sometimes doing that can get people out of the conflictual uh, back and forth that's going on and join them in a different state of mind because that is all hypnosis is, is focusing in a different state of mind and having the ability to do that and to guide people in that. Hypnosis in and of itself is not healing. It's what happens in hypnosis. Magnificent. Mm. And I, I do have a question that I keep, I keep sort of tumbling in my mind almost all my life. <laughs> these these uh, couples who live together for years and years, not married, the minute they sign on that dotted line and get that marriage certificate, it's almost like everything goes to pot. <laughs> you know? And the means of it falls apart. Next thing you know, they're already in divorce courts already. What What is... I mean, is there an explanation for that? What, what, what happens? Well, I think that comes back to the, um, to the principle of, you know, when you live together, it's by an agreement. And you can walk at any time. And knowing that your partner can walk at any time, I imagine, could keep some people uh, being more giving, more generous, more conscious of their own behavior. But if signing on that dotted line means, ha-ha, now I can um, start to slack, now I don't have to be as giving, then, then of course that's going to present a problem. All of a sudden, things are different. And I think that, unfortunately, um, I see that with engagements, people who get together and they bait and switch. They know that... Um, I mean, and sex is a really great example of this. During dating, during courtship, they get fantastic sex. And then after they're married, what's the first thing that starts to dwindle out is they're not, they're not giving, they're not uh, generous. And then, of course, the other factors that go on with that, when resentment gets woven in, then that really is a, a sex killer. Mm. But I think that it's it's the idea that um, you have to, you know, relationships take a lot of work. People who are married for a long time um, will report, yes, they're satisfied and yes, they're happy, but they also do a lot of work. They They give when it hurts. They are constantly focused on, what's going on in the other person's world. They have high expectations of one another. They put their best self forward, even when they're not particularly feeling, um, feeling like it. 
Um, I when I say that doing my work has helped in my marriage, I see people who are so unaware of the hurt they cause by just being able to open their mouths and let anything fly. And it has given me an awareness that, you know, your behaviors, your, the way you act with your partner matters. I have a question that came in. Um, can great sex save most marriages? Yes. Oh, I, 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 oh, sorry. Dr. Woolman, the therapist, has just come aboard. <laughs> sorry, sorry. That was the reflex. Can, I didn't even it didn't even go to my brain. <laughs> can great sex save most marriages? Well, I think um I'm going to have to say that it certainly figures into it. Let's look at what the people's expectations are. If that's really one of their expectations and it's not being met, then one of those partners or both of those partners are going to be unhappy. Are there great marriages where there's not a lot of sex? Absolutely. There are people who, whose uh, need, desire for sex is not all that high. And how wonderful if they have a partner who is uh, like-minded. Um, but I think that to answer that question, it, it goes along with the, the expectation. Now, I really believe that sex is a part of most marriages and keeping that alive, um, not letting that go to gravitate to the back burner, um, being in touch with what your partner needs or wants is very important. And can marriages or can relationships have great sex? Yes. And I think that that is something that people can be better equipped to do with, with exploration, with, with education, with, um, with openness, with exercise, being, being, uh, having um, your self be fit and, and in shape definitely helps with that. I like that part. <laughs> Wait, which part don't you like? Uh, <laughs> I'll take it all as a whole then. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Now, that, you know, that brings up a very good point. I mean, we talked about uh, people dating and they're in the early phases and everything is flowery and kind of lusty and intimate and things like that. And then people get married and maybe it even stays like that for a while. But it, at a time when a woman starts to go through menopause and a man might go through womanopause or something like that. <laughs> uh, I was trying to think of something very quickly. So that it would be how, about, how about menopause? Menopause. Well, I thought, you know, we're using the word men for women, so we should have something. Maybe oh, we should call we it femopause. <laughs> I don't know. But, but people do go through changes, and we know that there's hormones that change things. Uh, and people just change over time. So if one person changes at a different rate, how, how do you do that? Do, do you see, I guess one of the things I'm asking is, no, let's, let me just leave it at that for a second. I was going to ask you about 
how old people can be and still come in to see a therapist at 80 or 90 or 100 or something like that. But uh, how do you deal with the changes uh, that people go through on both sides and one is changing and the other isn't? Well, one thing is definitely having compassion for the other person. Uh, for Let's take your example where women go through menopause and that happens during a time of life when their parents might be aging, when they have children that are older that are now having maybe more complicated problems. And so it gets mixed up with, um, with phase of life. And there's a lot of pressure on women in that phase of life. And men, too. I'm not saying that, that men don't have it, too. Uh, and when hormones start to drop or go all over the map, sex isn't generally the first thing on their mind. So having a partner who's compassionate, who understands, who is patient with that is really important. And being educated about what's going on is really important. Mm-hmm. And having, the, in your example, the, the wife or the woman... Um, understanding that this guy still has needs or wants that she can still meet. It doesn't have to be intercourse. It can be, um, there's a whole spectrum of sexual acts that can be very satisfying or just touching, holding hands, mm-hmm. um, maybe even talking about it, saying, honey, I know that we're not having sex, or, or, but, you know, we will, and I don't anticipate on closing the door on this forever. Um, so I think that a person's or the couple's past sexual history is going to predict how it's going to be in the future. Now, if it was never really all that satisfying or all that great, uh, she can say, great, I'm off the hook now. And of course, that's not going to work. And that has to be addressed and talked about. Do you see any cultural variations in marriage, uh, treating people around the world? If, if two people come that live in America, but are from India and have a different way of looking at things, uh, how do you work with people that are either from another culture or within their own marriage that's interculturally different? Well, that's a really good question. And and by the way, I do have some um, older clients, older couples. I I see a couple in which one of the members is 89. So uh, these questions don't go away. Um, But Glenn, to answer your question, you have to use your your clients as informants. What does your culture tell you about that? What is the cultural norm? What do I need to know about your culture? And um, generally um, being informed by them as to what their culture expects is important. And um, also knowing that in many other cultures, People look to therapists as experts. They want advice. They want you to be direct. They want you to be more, um, uh, I guess I would use the word directive. In our culture, we don't, we don't look to therapists for that direction and advice. 
And so you need to adjust your style. Mm. In other words, you can't get into some kind of uh, philosophical debate with, with not that I ever debate with people in (laughs) therapy, but um, uh, about... about their values, because in their culture and in many other cultures than ours, uh, values are very concrete. They're very set. They're very uh, they're 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 inculcated. And in our culture, we have our values tend to be tend to shift and change. Hmm. Interesting. We're speaking today with Ann Diamond, a marriage and family therapist and a licensed psychological clinical counselor. And Ann, each time we come to near the end of our uh, great episode, we ask our special guest for a health tip. And I wonder if you have something for us today. Well, I do. I um... That works out. I want to tell you where I learned it, where I learned it from. When I was a teenager, uh, there was a, a woman, she was a minister of the Congregational Church in, in Weston, Connecticut, and she gave free yoga lessons to teenagers, which was just wonderful. And one of her pieces of advice was to always keep your feet supple that if your feet are supple you will have youth and so she advised that you uh, wash your feet with cool water before going to bed and massage your feet with lotion or oil and so I have always kept that with me that is something that I do and she said that the more supple your heels are, the better health your better back health you'll have, and I think I think she's right, and so um, that is my health tip. <laughs> you know, I I love this part of the show because I really never I, I never have an expectation for what someone's going to say, but I always somehow think that it's going to be necessarily about what they do, what they know best. And every one of them surprised me. They come from the heart, and they come from great wisdom. And that was another one. I never expected something like that. <laughs> but but great. And I see that, too, especially with, uh, you know, feet and posture and issues going into the ankles and knees and hips and back and all the way up to the head and jaw. That's a great uh, piece of advice. But it's also, well, I, I, I read into it like a, a metaphor for relationship, keeping ah. everything supple. If you are supple within your body, because in reflexology, everything happens in the feet and it goes up through the body. So if your feet are flexible and supple, it, it goes through your body and then it will also um, um, manifests itself in your spirit. Christina, that is so, that is just so well stated and so true because getting back to what we were talking about before we were on air, we were talking about being flexible and being flexible is the key to adjusting in life. Getting back to anxiety and depression, one of the, one of the principles that people need to be taught is flexibility that you that in fact you are the one who needs to adjust to life and not vice versa 
So I really appreciate your take on that. So yes, keep it supple and uh, keep it juicy. (laughs) (laughs) Keep that oil. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) And uh, when we decided to talk together, is there anything that you wanted to really talk about that we haven't brought up today? This would be an opportunity. Otherwise, I believe we've covered many great parts that I hope will be helpful to people. Well, I think we covered a lot. And all I would like to say is um, I might have, um, if there was anything that I said that was inaccurate, I invite feedback. Or if anybody has any other views, I would really love to hear them. I think my website is posted. And if there is any conversation that would... um, that can continue. I would love to participate in that. And I want to thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about what I do. That's great. I'm grateful to our very special guest, Anne Diamond, for sharing her wisdom and expertise with us. And I'm grateful to all of my healers that have helped me and my teachers that have taught me and keep me on my journey. Look forward to being with Christina again next week as we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. Uh, Anne, thank you so much for sharing with us today. That was just great. Uh, Thank you. It's a pleasure. Yep. And to everyone else out there, uh, until next week, I wish you all optimal health. (laughs) Thank you very much, Dr. Glenn Woolman, and of course, to you, Anne Diamond. That was uh, a great ride through that galaxy, boy. It is a galaxy. <laughs> well, I know I know of new planets that we can enter. So <laughs> Venus and Mars. Uh, oh, there we go. <laughs> and of course, thank you very much to Segovia Smith and the Yoga Hub team for making this all possible. And to each and every one of you for joining us on this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support and look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. We invite you to join us live on Tuesdays for Magical Medical Tour at 10.30 a.m. Pacific, 1.30 Eastern, Wednesdays for Trinity of Life at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, followed every other week with Flowing into Awareness with Anatara. I'd like to remind you to connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman by following him on Twitter at Glenn Woolman, and of course through his own website, glennwoolman.com where I encourage you to learn about his metaphor, square breath. We're also very, very grateful for any feedback, and you are very welcome to leave us a message on our phone line, which is 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Until next time, namaste. Namaste. 